After our baby struggled for my body, followed by the placenta which had nourished him, I gingerly walked to a bed elsewhere in the birthing centre. While I lay on the freshly laid sheets believing in miracles, puffed up with pride and what I now regard as a fatal smugness, a midwife who had just come on duty peered into my vagina. I don't think I'll do you here, I heard her saying. That's quite a tear. You'd be better off in theatre. I was not alarmed. Practically every woman I know who has given birth has ended up with stitches. How many stitches will I need, I asked, gradually rising to the surface, getting ready to compare my war wounds with my friends. It looks like a third degree tear to me, she said, smiling as she pulled off her gloves. I wouldn't bother counting. If I could reverse time and go back to that moment, I'd rouse myself from my love-soaked dream, call Liz to my side and not let anybody touch me. If I could, I'd stand up and shout for the experts, for every specialist in the country, for the only doctor alive in the world capable of sewing a stitch in the gossamer of an angel's wing. But of course, time and life does not work like that. If I had stayed in London, would the horrific events which followed never have happened? If this is one of the questions I tortured myself with later, it was because, in essence, I was still resisting the idea that I was not personally in control of everything. By the second day, Casper was gone from me. A nurse had noticed he was breathing too fast. He was taken elsewhere, and it was discovered by X-ray that a tiny section of his lung had failed to inflate. In 99% of cases, the lung writes itself, but as a precautionary measure, a fine needle was inserted into a vein in his tiny wrist, and he was given antibiotics. As it turned out, Casper proved to be in the lucky 99%. Nevertheless, the first time I saw him swaddled in his cot in the neonatal ward, amidst bright lights and the blare of voices and radios, my instinct was to wrench the drip from his wrist and save him. After he was taken, it seemed to me that I entered a strange dream. To get to my baby, I had to pass through a series of buildings and doors, down darkened corridors and empty, echoing stairwells, and it always seemed to be the middle of the night. I slept an exhausted sleep, and each time the phone rang, my heart leapt in panic as I was pitched headfirst from slumber. Your baby is awake and wants to be fed, a disembodied voice said in the dark, and I placed the telephone back in its cradle, fumbling for my dressing gown. It seemed to me that I was forever rushing towards Caspar, running through empty buildings, my heart crashing in my chest. All the while, I was literally coming apart at the seams. How to tell of those first days, those first weeks, when a childless woman invisibly mutates into a mother? How to tell of the process of giving yourself up, of learning to surrender your own breath in order to allow your baby the right air? How to tell of the beauty of Caspar's eyes, like the finest glazed pottery? How to tell of the elegance of his wrists, of holding his head against my breast and feeling hair, the texture of duckling down, tickling the skin between my thumb and forefinger. In those first heady days, before exhaustion and frustration and my sense of outrage that anyone could demand so much from another human being flared into life, 
I felt only a preternatural calmness. I dwelt in a great ocean of warmth and love. And one morning, when Les, Casper and I took our first trip into the outside world again, I felt a wave of pure joy break inside me. Meanwhile, as hour followed hour, I was slowly mutating into a mother. I was turning into a human clock for Casper, a 24-hour instrument of service, measuring out sleep, food, comfort. Casper Francis, aged two weeks, three weeks, four, had single-handedly overthrown the Gregorian calendar. My experience of temporal reality had been eclipsed by his. He took apart my personal body clock and refashioned it. It was not until I became a mother myself that I began to understand a mother's power. A mother is the moon and the sun to her infant, a human universe in which a baby dwells. It was not until I became a mother that I began to understand my own mother's power over me. I realised that even as an adult, I have often had to stop and remind myself where my own body stops and hers begins, fearing that if I displease her, she may pluck herself from the sky and plunge me into darkness. When Casper was nine weeks old, Les got a job in Melbourne and we packed up our new blue car, which had already blown up once, and took off down the highway. I could feel my breasts emptying of milk as we drove. I felt all my internal rivulets begin to run dry. As if sensing this, Caspar started to cry. To a woman who longs to keep breastfeeding her baby, breast milk represents pure evidence. It is evidence of love, of nurture, of the physical skill of the human body to provide everything a newborn child needs to survive. From the first, my breastfeeding of Casper was fraught. I had midwives and nurses and lactation consultants coming out of my ears, forcing my hand this way, Casper's mouth that way, pointing him open-mouthed at my nipple like a rattlesnake about to strike. In those first weeks in Sydney, after Casper and I came home, I clung to our regular visits to the nearby early childhood centre nurse, as if she alone possessed the baby operating instruction manual. I was not confident I could keep him running myself. I was irrationally worried about the bloody-looking crust in the folds behind his ears, about cutting his miniature fingernails too close to the quick, about flu-infested people sneezing on him about inadvertently poisoning him by leaving a spoon in the solution in which his dummy was soaking. More rationally, I was worried about the tests Casper was supposed to have at the hospital because the last scan I had before his birth had revealed that his left kidney was slightly enlarged. On the day of the test, Casper was given a needle full of antibiotics before the investigative procedure and we had to wait 20 minutes for it to flush through his system. When it was time to enter the procedure room, I donned a lead coat heavy as chain mail. I was asked if I could keep Casper's frail arms pinned above his head while his legs were spread like a frog's and a warm antiseptic solution spread over his genitals. A nurse gently placed a green operating garment over him with a square cut out around his penis before applying anaesthetizing jelly. She then threaded a catheter through his urethra and pumped in some kind of fluid. 
Another nurse held a syringe over his penis and dripped warm water onto him in an attempt to get him to pass the fluid back out. Everyone in the room was watching the screen above the operating table to see exactly what happened to the fluid. I was watching the struggling face of my 15-day-old baby, trying, unsuccessfully, not to cry. When everything was over, Caspar and his left kidney were declared to be in perfect working order. That only left follow-up checks on his lungs and a new knowledge that as long as Caspar was alive in the world, I would be forced to consider again and again the black, roaring mouth of the abyss. On the 29th of August, when Caspar was three weeks old, he smiled at me for the first time. His porcelain blue eyes looked straight into mine, and before I knew it, I had started to cry. I sat on the bed, weeping, while Caspar continued to gaze at me. I was so tired. I was so happy. I was a complete and utter physical and emotional wreck. I was constipated. My hair was falling out and I did not know why wind was coming out of my vagina. All in all, I was being given a deluxe whirlwind tour of life, and the only thing I could do was hold on. As soon as I could, I rang the early childhood nurse, Jan. It sounds to me like you might have a fistula, she said. When's your checkup due? A fistula? I'd never heard the word. At the six-weekly postnatal checkup, Casper lay in his sling while I spread my legs on a table above him. There was a senior consultant on roster that day, plus a young registrar. Have a look at this, said the junior doctor to the senior consultant, who casually wandered over. Oh, I wouldn't be too concerned about it at this stage, he said in an offhand manner to the registrar before addressing me. You're off to Melbourne soon, aren't you? They can take another look at you there. I remember the young doctor pulling the folds of my vagina apart and insisting the consultant have another look. There seems to be something there, he said, prodding me with a latexed finger. The consultant pulled off his gloves. These things have a way of fixing themselves, he said to the young doctor as well as me. It's far too early to tell if she's got a rectovaginal fistula. I already knew, because the early childhood nurse had told me, that a rectovaginal fistula is a minuscule passage running between the two areas. Usually, only rectal wind passes through this passage and out the vagina, but occasionally there is also what the medical profession calls faecal soiling. I gathered up Casper in his sling, thanked the doctors, then walked back to the flat. Casper was eight weeks old when it finally occurred to me that, for the foreseeable future at least, his demands would not cease for a moment. There was never going to be a coming weekend when I could lie in bed all day as if recovering from an all-night party. There was never going to be even one morning when I could sleep in for an hour. By week eight, I had trouble controlling the muscle of my left eyelid. My eyelid kept attempting to fall over my eyeball as if trying to drown me in sleep. Never in my whole life had I known an exhaustion so complete that it seemed to reach the linings of my bones. Every muscle, every fibre, every cell of my body felt used up and exhausted, and each time I woke from a broken sleep, my jaw ached from tension. 
When Casper was 70 days old, we raised our waterlogged heads and amazingly, stupidly, full of blind, dumb hope and unslept sleep, we took off for Melbourne. This is the part where I am going to write about rage, about the terrible language of tears. This is the part where I am going to write about the fire which blazed up in our eyes without warning. One day I looked at Les, and it was as if we had been scorched, burnt black by the flames. A weird, fierce hatred had been born within us, archaic, demonic. I was the siren woman who had lured him to the rocks. He was the demon lover bent on destroying me. When Caspar screamed ceaselessly, intolerably, terribly into our ears, we turned and screamed at each other. My quiet, gentle Les threw a chair against the wall and I burst into tears of helplessness, rage and exhaustion. I read somewhere that the result of the arrival of a baby into a relationship can sometimes be like that of a hand grenade tossed in the door. Caspar exploded in our faces, blowing up the known world. <laughs> 